Good morning, brothers and sisters, friends, family. Uh, we'll, we'll look this morning at uh, Revelation 18, if you want to open there. Um, I, I want to begin by, by reading, I want to cite some verses from uh, uh, Jeremiah 51, but if you want to land in chapter 18 of Revelation, we'll get there. Uh, Jeremiah 50 and 51 um, depicts the, the fall of the literal original Babylon, and, and I just want to read some verses from these two chapters, because you, you'll hear some of these words in Revelation 18. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. O you who dwell by many waters, rich in treasures, your end has come, the thread of your life is cut. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false. There is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Behold, I'm against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. Go out of the midst of her, my people, Let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of the Lord. Therefore, behold, the days are coming when I will punish the images of Babylon. Her whole land shall be put to shame. All of her slain shall fall in the midst of her. Then the heavens and the earth and all that is in them shall shall sing rather for joy over Babylon. For the destroyers shall come against them out of the north, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will execute judgment upon her images. Jeremiah wrote in a book, all the disaster that should come upon Babylon, all these words that are written concerning Babylon. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it, cast it into the midst of the Euphrates, and say, thus shall Babylon sink, to rise no more. Because of the disaster that I'm bringing upon her, and they shall become exhausted. Thus are the words of Jeremiah. Well, we could read from Ezekiel 27 as well. We won't. We don't have time, which predicts the fall um, of the city of Tyre. Um, Israel's prophets uh, foretold of... uh, these two Gentile um, cities, um, what will happen to them ultimately? They'll be destroyed. And their destruction here centuries earlier, uh, before the revelation, become a picture of what will happen to Babylon the Great at the time of the end. The angel... Verses 1 and 2, who reveals this, if you notice, speaks with the authority of God. It's a mighty voice from heaven. Having been in God's presence, this angel radiates the glory of God and illumines the earth. Verses 1 and 2. We've witnessed thus far um, in the Revelation hints of Babylon, um, its identity, its eventual downfall, and uh, leading to this... Um, its ultimate ruin. 
its final destruction as the beast itself turns on the mother whore of all prostitutes. The beast turns on the woman. Now, it's important that we not separate this chapter from chapter 17. That is from the portrayal of the prostitute. Um, She made her, her graphic debut there. So we can't separate the two. Uh, John here um, is describing for us God's judgment on the great satanic system of evil. Evil that corrupts, evil that deceives. And this harlot in John's day certainly uh, was the city of Rome. The beast is the Roman Empire. But it's not limited to that, if we recall. It's not limited to Rome. It's not limited to the Roman Empire um, in apocalyptic symbolism. Uh, It's not limited to those two things or those two places, but it extends to governments that arise that persecute God's people with the sword and and attempt to deceive her or lead her into um, spiritual adultery. So this is uh, Babylon, the great metaphorical city the great world system that's hostile to God, that's hostile to God's people, um, and is being pictured for us here under the final judgment of the almighty hand of our sovereign Lord. So John here is giving a vision uh, of uh, the world passing away. In John, 1 John 2, verse 16, John also writes there, he says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possession is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here in verses 1 through 3, Revelation 18, John provides a a kind of prelude um, as he gives this, this brief synopsis of the entire judgment that falls. He calls out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants and the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then, John calls out with a word of warning for God's people. Come out of her, my people. You heard that in Jeremiah, amen? Come out from her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Now, the reason for the separation is serious enough, amen? It's serious enough, but, you know, lest the church be caught up in her impending judgment, verse 5, it's a call, it's a warning for all God's people to flee from the evil of this woman before it's too late. In other words, those who profess Christ, those who profess to be part of the bride of Christ, who are in bed with this whore. That's the picture. Come out from among her. So John's burden here is, is to exhort the churches to, to, shun, the ch- to shun her charm. The, the ensnarement of this queen prostitute, that's the warning. because her, her alluring ploys are made manifest in the world in which they live. So it's the same to this day. 
You know, Augustine of Hippo in the 5th century, after spending his youth in uh, much of the city of this world and its pleasures leading to all of its allurements, you know, in the 5th century he wrote uh, The City of God. And Augustine outlined his philosophy of life, the Christian life, and he called upon Christians to flee from out of the city of this world. One commentator writes, and I quote, Whoever, Wherever there is idolatry, prostitution, self-glorification, self-sufficiency, pride, complacency, reliance on luxury and wealth, violence against life, there is Babylon. And Christians are to separate themselves ideologically and, if necessary, physically from all forms of Babylon, end quote. Now, if we recall back in chapter 2 and chapter 3, John already, already warned the churches of her snares of deceit. And if they refuse to separate from themselves, themselves from her, John warns that they will share in her sins. So here's a call in verse 4. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. So the suddenness here of Babylon's ruin is a solemn lesson that things can change just like that. God's judgment can come swiftly. His justice is revealed here in a moment. So here's the warning. Now, thus far, we've seen how the sixth bowl, okay, this is important, the sixth bowl, you remember the demonic deception of gathering together the nations at, at, at Armageddon to wage war on the church? Remember that demonic deception? The sixth bowl and the seventh bowl judgment, this destruction depicted here on, on Babylon, both occur at the time of the end. They, they occur simultaneously. Jesus returns to judge the world, raise the dead, and make all things new all at the same time. And, and that truth, I say that because that truth is yet another powerful argument against all forms of premillennialism, which teaches that Jesus Christ returns to earth and then establishes his kingdom before judging the world, which he will commence to do after that thousand literal years. That's what premillennialism teaches. But throughout the Revelation, we have seen that John teaches that judgment day occurs when Christ comes back, not a thousand years later. That is why realized millennialism, or inaugurated millennialism, or what theologians call ah millennialism, is consistent with history and prophecy. Very important. We are now in the millennial reign of our incarnate, risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, the amillennial view also best explains Hebrews 12, verse 26 and 27. Listen to this. Yet, once more, speaking of the rumblings and the shaking 
of the mountain when the law was given. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removals of all things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be graceful for, grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. See, premillennial dispensationalists, their view requires two shakings. Logically, two shakings. One at the second coming and one at the end of a literal 1,000 years. Which is all preceded by what they refer to as a secret rapture. And as I said before, the Bible definitely certainly teaches a rapture, but there's nothing secret about it. Amen? It's very loud. This is a picture of the funeral of Babylon the Great. Personified here is a great whore, the mother of all prostitutes, representing for us the community of the human race that's set in opposition to her creator and the radical idolatry of wealth. Now, prostitution is something that we, we recoil at. Amen? Or we should. Because it's sleazy, it's tawdry, and and it cheapens and commercializes something that's very sacred. And the the picture is the marriage bed of a husband and a wife, man and a woman. And the exchange of money adds insult to the offense. That is, to something beautiful and covenantal. That's the marriage bed. It's beautiful, it's covenantal, and and this brings something to a heavenly level down to the level of the gutter. This is John's intention. That's God's intention. It always has been to to reveal this with regard to spiritual uh, idolatry using prostitution that defiles the marriage bed. But here in this chapter, um, the whore has been destroyed And her lovers are upset. So through traffic in this this prostitute's bed, through this kind of vulgar relationship, vulgar relationships, they've been made wealthy. They've prospered greatly by way of traffic in her bed. So after all the merchants have cashed in on her um, ever-ready in willing market, they realize the promise of eternal gain by way of wealth, by way of prosperity, by way of materialism, and and salvation through financial security has been shattered, destroyed. And they now bewail her destruction. They're crying out. They're lamenting. And uh, the expression of lament for this great city's fall, a metaphorical city, is divided into three parts. Notice, we see in verses 9 and 10, the kings of the earth wail. Number two, we see the lament of merchants who traded with her, verses 11 through 17. And then the lament of sea captains who, who became wealthy from the cargo that they took into her, into this city, verses 18 to 20. And then we see the final blow Um, to the life of the city because she deceived the nations and killed God's people, verses 21 to 24. So as we move through this, 
we're shown not only the vivid details of destruction poured out upon Babylon the Great, but also two very different reactions to this destruction. One is from those who dwell on earth. Remember as we go through Revelation, those who dwell on earth represent unbelievers. And the other is from those who are of the household of faith. Two reactions to the destruction of Babylon, the great. So John combines the song of triumph with the wail of lamentation into this gripping funeral dirge. Verse 6. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. Thus is the pride of those who stand settled with the false security of of worldly riches. Kim Riddlebarger, citing in part Dennis Johnson, says this, and I quote, Because of her smug self-confidence and her arrogant pride, in just one day God will give to her exactly that punishment which her sins require. She will be consumed by those very things from which she thought herself immune, famine, death, and mourning. Glory and luxury will give way to grief and torture. It is a frightening picture of what awaits for those who have turned their backs upon Christ because of the allure of the harlot, end quote. Remember last week I quoted a young lady who grew up in the church. Her mother was pleading with her to go back to the church. She was incredibly wealthy, or at least she married a man who was incredibly wealthy. And she looked around, she pointed, she goes, Mom, Who needs Jesus when you have all of this? That's the allure of this harlot. Now, this word translated here, double, verse 6, pay her double, is is also translated duplicate. So that is, uh, this would fit what follows in verse 7. In other words, the punishment will meet its crime. The punishment meets its crime. It doesn't exceed it. God is just, so he will pay her in duplicate for all that she has done, for all of her deceit. In other words, no one can ever possibly impugn the justice of God or impugn God for for the way he meets out his justice because it's perfect. So here they are. Her lovers are, are weeping over this destroyed prostitute. That's the picture. Notice the cry, verse 10. Alas, alas, great, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Again, in verses 16 and 17, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. Verse 19, they threw dust on their heads. They wept and they mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. Wailing, 
So the redundancy that we see here uh, shows for us a, a powerful expression of intensity and grief over the loss, the death of this prostitute. The one they worship, their idol, the one they sought their security in and stood there with her, or I should say laid there with her um, in bed. She's dead. The one they gave allegiance to is dead, destroyed, smoldering. And they wail. They sold their souls to her. And she promised them economic power, economic security. And she just seemed, as, they, as she lived, to, to effortlessly provide this kind of false security. They weep and they wail. Verse 9, weeping there refers to a loud, bellowing cry conveying violent emotion. Ever seen a kid weeping and wailing with violent emotion? And you remember when you cried like that as a kid, you couldn't catch your breath? <laughs> That's graphic imagery here. For, for, you know, being conveyed for, for, by all of those who profited from her. So Babylon is no longer a place that they can trade. No one buys their goods anymore. Gold, silver, precious stones, pearls. See that in verses 11 through, seven, uh, 11 through 13. The, the picture extends out um, into the sea to ship captains who, who watch the rising smoke hanging over the city. And they all lament. This reminds me of 9-11. I mean, those towers smoldering and people stood there, right? Wall Street people tripping out. I, I read of one guy who was a Wall Street trader. When he saw the smoke bellowing because he's in bed with this whore, he said, I got to be honest, I got on the phone and said, put all your money into gold. And he said, I made a fortune. As it was smoldering, well, the majority of other people were weeping and wailing because all of their security, all of their trust is in, in the system that reminds me of this. So we see lamentations and in woes. The sight of the city is on fire, verse 9. They're terrified. All of her supporters are terrified, verse 10. Despair arises due to either the suddenness of her demise and her destruction in one hour. Just like that, verse 10, verse 17 verse 19, or it's because of the effect that it has upon them. No one buys their cargo anymore, verse 11. One or the other, or probably both. So the point is, is that her downfall comes swiftly, it comes suddenly, it comes certainly, it comes most definitely. It comes. And the mourners here catch a glimpse uh, of the reality of, of all of the faces of the worshipers of this beast. It's torment. It's misery. And if God is going to cause Babylon to burn, the Babylonian traders will not be far behind. Th these are the people that see God as their enemy. 
The world sees God as my enemy. He's my enemy. His gospel is binding. His gospel is enslavement. And the reason they see it as enslavement is because they're truly slaves. They're already in chains. As it's been said, with shekels come shackles. And by the way, what we see here is the obvious deception of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. They're trying to straddle the line of serving God and mammon. Make no mistake. They're perpetrators of this. So those being destroyed see God and his ways and his gospel and his people as their enemies, whether they verbalize it or not, because he's an offense. And the message we proclaim is an offense, because it's not our message, it's his message. Every authentic Christian understands the sting of Jesus' words when he said this. Do not think, in Matthew 10, do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a... A sword. I have, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of their own household. Okay, that's a given. That's an inescapable reality of living for Christ, having been called out by Christ in the midst of a fallen world. I read this past, or two weeks ago, uh, one commentator asked this question. Okay, we already know that the world looks at God as their enemy. And, and they, they try to recreate him in their own image, and they say God is like this or whatever. They, they'll admit they believe in some God, but he has to fit the mold of their own creation, right? One commentator, one commentator asked this, does God have enemies? In other words, does he look at individuals and say, that's my enemy? He said this. Is it proper to think of God having enemies? He says, ask an Islamic extremist in the Middle East and he will answer emphatically, yes, the United States of America is his enemy. Ask a Pakistani Hindu. Yes, of course, the Muslims are his enemy. Ask the same question to a Christian living in America 150 years ago and he will say, most certainly, yes, God has enemies because the Bible says so. Fast forward and ask a contemporary evangelical who, for the most part, possesses a Christianity not shaped by the Jesus of Scripture, but the cultural tenet of tolerance. And he'll answer, "Uh, perhaps demons are his enemies, but humans, no way. After all, doesn't God love everybody? Isn't that his job? Does God have enemies? If he does, it's probably something he ought to keep to himself. And I don't think it's a loving thing to tell people that he does or tell them of his judgment. I only talk about his love because he's a loving God. God is love. You know, there are so many self-induced ignoramuses out there who think like that, who claim to be Christian and think in such foolish terms as these. They build their own theology as they go, shaped by cultural orthodoxy. So, of course, God doesn't have enemies. He can't. 
right? Now, to those whose minds are foiled over the matter, hopefully nobody here, I have to gently say, in love, open up the Bible. In the fact that God has enemies is all over the Bible. It's throughout Scripture. Just read it. But you have to believe it. Don't be a fool. Now, the most intensified form of God having enemies shows up right here in chapter 18 of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen? Radically opposed to the political correctness of our day is the fact that God not only exercises his judgment against those enemies, he also declares the reasons why in verse 3, verse 7, and verse 8. And in addition to that, beloved, in addition to the fact that God has enemies, is that he expects his people to rejoice in his judgment over those enemies. How does that how does that fare with the culturally minded evangelicals of our day? Huh? And it's depicted for us here by way of a command in Revelation 18, verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Do you get that? Rejoice over who? Get it. Burning, smoldering Babylon, whose smoke goes up forever. Look at 19 verse 3. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke of her goes up forever and ever. Why do you rejoice? You'll rejoice all right because uh, your discernment won't be tainted with sin. Amen? You will see perfectly as God does. Rejoice. So chapters 17 through 19 reveal certain biblical features that are important for us to grasp. Amen? Let, let, let us not have the mind of, of folly and foolishness that, that the modern American evangelical church has guided by cultural norms and not scripture. Amen? It's ridiculous. Don't be that. Now, does that mean when an unbeliever dies, we rejoice, saying, God, you know, they get what, they're getting what's theirs? No, it's a much bigger picture than that, friends. I don't rejoice over the, the loss of those who are lost. I rejoice that God's perfect sovereign will is being carried out. Amen? You remember Exodus, uh, well, you don't remember it because we haven't been there yet, but by reading your Bible, Ex- in Exodus 14, describes God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. And chapter 15 of the Exodus, we read of the song of Moses and Miriam, rejoicing not only over the deliverance that God has provided, but the judgment of drowning his enemies in the Red Sea. You remember that? Well, what about Revelation 14? That you will remember. Verse 19, 
The angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. What's the response? Chapter 15, rejoicing and praise. They sing, verse 3, the song of Moses. The servant of God and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Okay, the Apostle John follows the same pattern right here. In the, district, in the description of the destruction of this whore. In chapter 17, is followed by chapters 18 and 19, where we see a song recounting God's judgment. And let's not forget the attitude conveyed while she existed. Verse 7. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow. In mourning, I shall never see. That's the boast of blindness, friends. It comes from Isaiah 47, verse 8. But just the opposite is the case. Amen? You know, her, her arrogance reminds me of uh, Edom. Obadiah. God's word. Listen to this. Obadiah 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling. Who say in your heart, you don't even have to say it with your mouth. Who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And then he goes on to say, if thieves came to you, eat them. If plunders came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? In other words, they wouldn't pillage you bare. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? In other words, I'm going to crush you till you have nothing. Nothing will be, I mean, nothing will be visible. How Esau has been pillaged, another name for Edom, his treasures sought out. That's what it reminded me of. That kind of attitude. Living high, exalted. Sitting as queen. Notice verse 21. Then the mighty angel took up a stone. Like a great millstone. Threw it into the sea. Saying, so will Babylon the great. The great city be thrown down with violence. And will be found no more. Remember what Jesus said about millstones, right? 
whoever causes one of these little ones of mine to stumble, one of these who believe in me to stumble, a young believer, okay, a young, impressionable, naive, not yet fully discerning believer to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone, a great millstone, this is the kind that weighs you know, 300 to 500 pounds and it took a donkey to turn the thing. It would be better if he had fastened around his neck this great weight and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. Notice this stone, notice, is what? Like a great millstone. Apocalyptic, like. Which certainly means it's a lot worse. And Jesus is speaking to Jews there, and that was a Gentile form of punishment. That, that would be enough abomination for them and their self-righteous little minds. So like a great millstone, Babylon is utterly destroyed, will never raise her head again. Thrown down in violence will be found no more. No more. No mo. No mo. N-O-M-O. No mo. Verse 22. The sound of the harpist and musicians, a few players and trumpeters will be heard in you no mo. A craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. The sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. The light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. It says, all nations were deceived by your sorcery, led astray by, by magic spells, if you were, will. Uh, you know, the word uh, pharmakia, where we get, you know, pharmaceutical. It's the practice of sorceries or, or witchcraft. And usually drugs were involved within these arts. And with her deceit, Babylon charmed the nations. And now something like a millstone has brought her down. Mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so Babylon, so will Babylon, verse 21, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Isn't it incredible to be saved, to be given sight, to see, to be given the ability to believe? You know how many people believe in God or a God, but they don't believe? Or even those who claim to believe in Jesus. I don't know what Jesus, half of them are talking about, but it's not this one. It's not this Jesus. What Jesus would, would, would destroy people with something like a great millstone, this loving God. It's because there's perfect triune love. There's perfect love within the triune God himself. And he is righteous and he is just 
as he is merciful and loving. He's exalted his word above that of his own name. And he will mete out his justice perfectly. And that's what we're seeing. Amen? This is why we rejoice every time we come together. Don't ever forget the judgment of God. Don't ever forget the judgment of God that is passed over you because it was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross on your behalf. People in the depths of hell are the only ones that can even come close to understanding the suffering of Jesus on the cross. Even close. You'll never taste it because he consumed it in your place. And we've been delivered from all kinds of sin. We've been delivered from the beast. We've been delivered from this whore and brought into the household of faith. So this is quite a charge brought against Babylon the Great. We read a very similar charge that's brought against the ancient city of Nineveh. Now, you're all familiar with Nineveh because what? Because of who? Who went there and preached? Jonah went there and preached. God's judgment, God's looming judgment, amen? He preached, repent. Forty days. And they were spared from God's judgment through the preaching of really an unwilling prophet. Nineveh repented, right? Well, a century century later, they refused to repent through the preaching of Nahum. Nahum 3.5, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. Does he say I'm for you? You know, I'm just up here, I'm the cheerleader, I'm the sovereign cheerleader of the universe. I'm just cheering you on because I'm for you. Does it say that? No, I'm against you, declares the Lord. Every culture, every little subculture that stands in opposition to their creator, God is against them. Word. Let's say it together. One, two, three. Word. I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face. Utter humiliation. And I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh who will grieve for her. Who will grieve for her? Quite a picture, isn't it? And there are so many mealy-mouthed preachers in our day. Behind the destruction of this archetypal city of wickedness lies the truth that God is all-powerful, God is sovereign, and God, who cannot lie, will bring destruction 
upon her. And nothing, absolutely nothing can thwart. Here's a picture. Nothing can thwart his determination to build his church in the midst of her. The expansion of his what? Kingdom. In the midst of Babylon. The gates of Hades will not prevail, nor will the gates of Babylon. Not against you, his bride. So if you're in her, if you're straddling, come out from among her. Verse 4. Amen. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts this morning.